From PRX, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. House Democrats unveil a sweeping plan to help solve the climate crisis by investing in a green economy. We have 40 million Americans who are out of work now. And we think that there is an exciting pathway for folks to go to work building the macro grid, the super grid that we'll need to connect renewable power sources, solar and wind, to population centers across the country. Also, 60 years ago, Jane Goodall followed her dream when she first went into the forest with chimpanzees. I sat there looking out over the lake through these trees and a troop of baboons came by and I heard a bushbuck barking and it was like, this is my dream come true, I'm in paradise. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRX and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. After more than a year of consideration, the Democratic majority members of the House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis have come up with a massive 538-page plan for climate action. Their report pinpoints hundreds of measures to end carbon pollution and protect public health with climate-friendly economic transportation and energy systems and an end to subsidies for fossil fuels. With a focus on environmental justice, their plans call for conserving public lands, farmland, and forests to lock up carbon and also helping communities adapt to climate disruption. The chair of the Climate Crisis Committee, Kathy Castor of Florida, joins us now from the Capitol. Welcome back to Living on Earth. Thank you so much, Steve. So first, how does it feel to finally be able to release this report to the Congress? Well, I'm especially excited to be with you because I spoke with you at the outset over a year ago when Speaker Pelosi and the Democrats in Congress directed the establishment of a new select committee on the climate crisis and tasked us with talking to stakeholders all across the country, every political persuasion, folks really at the grassroots, and develop solutions for the Congress. Uh, They directed us to be ambitious, and we've delivered an ambitious report. Well, talk to me about some priorities. It's kind of like you have 10 hungry children, you love them all, but you have limited resources. How do you set priorities? What's your top priority here? The top priority is the clean energy economy. The plan says we have to decarbonize uh, American society by the year 2050. But in the various sectors of the economy, we propose we've got to act a lot faster. And the one that is the top priority really will be establishing a clean energy standard to clean up our grid no later than 2040. So that means we've got to get to work right away to do that. The other top priority is the transportation sector, because now there are more emissions coming out of the transportation sector than even the power sector. So we propose clean electric vehicles and set a goal of all new cars to be clean electric vehicles no later than 2035. How is this plan going to advance environmental justice and systemic racism? As you know, there are many communities across America that have carried the burden for entirely too long. They're the communities where the industrial plants are sited in their neighborhoods time after time. You know, we consulted all across the country, and I remember a trip to Detroit, Michigan, where I talked to environmental justice leaders. And even before the murder of George Floyd, we were focused on 
building our climate action plan upon a foundation of environmental justice and fair labor standards for workers. So environmental justice recommendations are embedded throughout our report. For example, the Environmental Protection Agency, when they make permitting decisions or they are trying to determine where to deploy community clean energy resources, community solar, we say that our environmental justice communities must come first. Congresswoman, the the climatologists are are talking about this being possibly the warmest year on record. With searing heat waves this summer, there will be air conditioning bills that some won't be able to afford. How How does this moment relate to the need to address the climate and equity? It's interesting that you mention that because my hometown of Tampa, Florida, just last week set an all-time high temperature record. They broke through to 99 degrees. And in Miami, they haven't really been able to cool off at night. So this is real to people. And you're right, the electric bills are going to be astronomical. So this is part of the, the cost. And I think in the past, the opponents of climate action have often argued it's too expensive for us to act on climate. It's too expensive to make these changes. People don't believe that anymore because they know they are paying those higher air conditioning bills or property insurance or flood insurance bills or for your stormwater fees. So this is a plan that will benefit all of us by reducing greenhouse gases and moving to the clean energy economy. That will benefit all of us. Rebuilding better, rebuilding in a more resilient way, uh, giving our local communities the tools they need to prevent flooding, to be sure they're ready for the more intense hurricanes, to be able to handle the wildfires. There are extensive recommendations on how the federal government can be a better partner to communities all across the country. Of course, with the COVID recession, there have been and there are going to be more stimulus bills. Congress is going to put forth money to help rebuild the economy. What does your report tell us how we should rebuild the economy in the wake of this COVID recession? This is a an enormous opportunity for America to rebuild better. We had an independent think tank look at our plan and model it out. And not only do we get about 90% of the way towards reducing emissions by 2050. They say that we'll create over 500,000 jobs as we uh, transition to the clean energy economy. We will save 62,000 lives annually if we move to the clean energy economy. But it's the jobs focus that is particularly important at this moment in time because we have 40 million Americans who are out of work now. And we think that there is an exciting pathway for folks to go to work building the macro grid, the super grid that we'll need to connect renewable power sources, solar and wind. These are the jobs in making our communities more resilient. We propose uh, reinvigorating the Civilian Conservation Corps, which was a President FDR idea back in the Great Depression. We propose a new climate resiliency core to help communities, especially environmental justice communities, do things to make uh, handle extreme heat, like planting trees in in formerly redlined neighborhoods or helping with natural solutions, reinvigorating, turning our public lands into places that aren't exploited for mining and, and fossil fuel development, but are places we can capture carbon 
you know, a lot of places all across the globe are already planning these kind of recovery plans. And we see an exciting opportunity for, for America to do so as well. Now, you mentioned uh, that the plan calls for a national super grid uh, using high voltage direct current transmission as opposed to the three big grids we have right now in America, right? We have an east and we have a west and we have Texas. And if you did that, right, it would make it possible for us to be 80% renewable with, with the balance of the baseload being handled by existing nuclear. Okay, great idea. But how heavy a lift is this going to be, do you think, to implement a nationwide a high voltage DC grid? Uh, there's money questions, there's rights of way questions. You bet. But this is a top priority because most most folks aren't aware that most renewable resources, this big solar arrays and wind power, most of those resources exist between the Rocky Mountains and the Mississippi River. So that has to be our goal to connect those less expensive renewable resources to population centers across the country. Uh, we recommend investing in research and development into storage of these resources. We recommend uh, significant investment in energy efficiency, which pays dividends if you can help businesses and consumers save on their electric bills. That's a plus. We have to do all of these things and you know our task is urgent. So here's some good news. Just uh, this week, the House Democrats passed a major transportation and infrastructure bill, the Moving Forward Act, H.R. 2. And a lot of the select committees solving the climate crisis recommendations are contained in that transportation and infrastructure bill. So we, we're already getting started on the infrastructure planning for the transmission supergrid or macrogrid. By the way, the plan talks about a lot of resources uh, getting promised to the fossil fuel industry for carbon capture and storage. But look, 25 years after that technology was first proposed and some pilot efforts mounted, it has yet to become cost effective. Why should taxpayers keep spending money on this? No, taxpayers should not keep spending money on that. We recommend that any of the tax incentives and appropriations that go to fossil fuel that they are ended over time and shifted to clean energy resources. And in fact, the Moving Forward Act that passed the House of Representatives this week extends a lot of our clean energy tax credits. Our report says for carbon capture and storage, if an industry proposes to use it and they're going to increase their carbon footprint, that won't be allowed. We, we recommend that there have to be some climate guardrails. We also believe that there are some industries out there where there are no solutions right now in how to capture their carbon, <laughs> meaning steel, the way we make cement and other industrial processes. And we think that that type of carbon capture and storage could be an important solution. But we have to, we have to develop the technology that doesn't exist right now. Now, by the way, the report calls for protecting at least 30% of all U.S. lands and ocean areas by 2030. It kind of sounds to me a bit like what Tom Udall over in the Senate side has been saying for a while. Where are we now on meeting that goal, and how do we get to 30% by 2030? And why is this so important for the climate? Vitally important to the climate that we do not continue to exploit our public lands 
and offshore waters. In fact, they can really be drivers of carbon solutions, whether that's sequestering carbon or preventing the overdevelopment of our farmlands and uh, protected spaces. People love our national park systems. They love the natural wilderness areas, but we need to understand that they are vital to carbon sequestration and climate action. There's a lot of extraction allowed on our public lands right now. We think over time that needs to come to an end and we need to make a broad-based commitment to protecting those public spaces. That's right. There's almost 500 gigatons of carbon just in America's public lands. How did your committee's on-site field visits help inform this report? You talked about environmental justice in one case, but uh, which other ones specifically were most informative and enlightening? Yeah, I traveled to the Hampton Roads area with Congresswoman Elaine Luria. We visited military installation in Norfolk that is dealing with the cost of rising sea levels. We also went with her and Congressman Don McEachin out to an area that floods repeatedly and they're having to relocate some neighborhoods there. That was impactful. And then just up the road, Congressman Bobby Scott took me to a neighborhood that also repeatedly floods. It's a lower income neighborhood. And the folks there told me they don't want to leave when it floods. That's their home. All of that helped influence our recommendations on flood mapping and how we make flood insurance more affordable to people, how we empower communities to understand what the climate risks are going to be in the future so they can make determinations where they're going to buy a home, where they're going to live, and empower the local communities to develop some resiliency plans, some adaptation plans over time. Traveling to... Motor City in Detroit and meeting with uh, Ford and GM and then with a lot of the auto workers was inspiring because they're already on track to transition over to the clean electric vehicles. They see it as a significant competitiveness issue with China and the European Union. And that inspired us to push hard when it comes to electric vehicles. We think we can be the world leader when it comes to manufacturing the clean cars and trucks. We went to California, Southern California, where they're building the clean electric buses. We envision a a future that's not too far off where every child in America who has to ride a bus to school, it's going to be a clean electric bus, and that's going to provide tremendous benefits to the air our kids breathe too. You got me on a roll here, Um, but I I wish in the COVID days we could... um, travel, but we're not going to be able to do that. We're going to do a lot of this virtually, but uh, I'm excited to amplify the recommendations in our report and keep listening to folks all across this diverse country as we move our recommendations into law. Democrat Kathy Castor is the chair of the House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis and serves Florida's 14th District. Congresswoman, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Oh, thank you so much, Steve. And uh, let's have another check-in on our, uh, make sure we're working through this to-do list down the road. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you.
And it's time now to take a look beyond the headlines with Peter Dykstra. Peter's an editor with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. And uh, he's on the line now from Atlanta, Georgia. Hey there, Peter. How you doing? What do you got for us today? Hi, Steve. Well, you know, uh, the end of June was a really, really bad time for one of the pioneering, biggest, baddest fracking companies in the United States, Chesapeake Energy, on uh, June 28th. They filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy after being a Fortune 500 company for the last few years. What happened to them? Uh, They've kind of fell apart. The prices of uh, oil and gas have fallen way, way down. Concerns about the environmental costs of fracking also began to weigh on the company. And they're also kind of an emblem for what's going on with fracking everywhere. Hmm, interesting. Hey, uh, what else do you have from the world of energy? Uh, With the prices down, there's got to be more news. Oh, there's plenty more. And because the price is down, the pipeline industry is uh, also having a tough time of it. Duke Energy and Dominion Energy decided to quit their 600-mile, multi-billion-dollar pipeline project, bringing gas through West Virginia, Virginia, and the Carolinas. They cited litigation and declining oil prices in killing the Atlantic Coast Pipeline was also the object of protests all along its route, particularly the part where the pipeline ducks under the Appalachian Trail. Well, hikers won't have to worry about that one now, apparently. No, they won't. But wait, Steve, there's more. Okay. A federal judge shut down an existing pipeline, the Dakota Access Pipeline, one of the uh, most contentious objects of litigation and protest by Native Americans, by environmentalists, farmers, ranchers, uh, property rights uh, advocates. The judge said that environmental review conducted by the Army Corps of Engineers was nowhere near adequate. They would have to do that over again before the pipeline would be allowed to reopen. Okay, Peter, what else do you have this week? Well, I was kind of struck by um, President Trump's saying that 1% of COVID cases were a big deal and the rest were harmless. So I grabbed the old calculator. There are 130,000 U.S. deaths and climbing. That includes my mom last month. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are nearly 3 million diagnosed cases at the time we're recording this. And that's not 1%, that's about 4%. And what struck me about it is that Mr. Trump makes a lot of wild claims. They contradict what he said, what others have said. But rarely are his wild claims so instantaneously disprovable. 4% are dead, and that's a big deal. Oh, Peter, I'm so sorry to hear about your mother. Yes, thanks. And um, Trump, by the way, has made the same kind of wild claims about climate change and about land use in the western states, all of that federal land managed by the Bureau of Land Management, which we will now call the other BLM. (laughs) Yes. Okay, Peter, so it's time now to pull out the history books and uh, tell me which page you've turned to. 25 years ago, Paige, uh, July 13th, 1995, a heat wave enveloped the Midwest. Uh, 739 people died in the city of Chicago alone. That heat wave was a very, very early look at how ugly climate change could be. And it also was a look at how climate change can be an environmental justice issue because an overwhelming number of those 739 deaths in Chicago 
were in African-American and Latinx neighborhoods. Thank you, Peter. Peter Dykstra is an editor with Environmental Health News at CHN.org and DailyClimate.org. And we'll talk to you again real soon. All right, Steve. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. And there's more in these stories at the Living on Earth website. That's LOE.org. It's the height of the tick season, and in the eastern U.S., beware of the black-legged or deer tick that can carry Lyme disease, which, if left untreated, can spread to joints, the heart, and the nervous system. And research shows climate change is making it even more common. One U.S. study found that boosting average temperatures by 2 degrees Celsius could increase Lyme disease cases by 20%. Luckily, there are proven ways to reduce your risk. Wear long-sleeve clothing, use repellents, and do a thorough tick check after you've been walking outside in the woods or meadows where ticks can hide. And Living on Earth's Jenny Doring reports from Exeter, New Hampshire, about another way to combat ticks in your backyard. Susie and Hazel Koff live an enchanted childhood. On a warm July day, the six- and three-year-olds run through the sun-dappled forest in their New Hampshire backyard. Their mother, Sarah, says this is how they spend their summer. We love going outside playing in the woods. Um, We have this great big yard that they play in, and we have a sandbox out here and slack line and all sorts of things. And we like to make fairy houses, and we like to garden together. So, yeah, we're outside pretty much every day. But in the Northeast, where there are woods, there are ticks. A lot of them. I was so just overwhelmed by the ticks in our yard. I'm a big gardener and my daughters, um, it's just, I feel like it's really important for them to spend as much of their time outside as possible. And, you know, we live in the woods. And so in April and May, they were just coming in with ticks every day on them. And my husband was and I was, and it was just getting too much. I was so overwhelmed and I just... I'm such a big gardener, there's no way I was willing to spray anything on the lawn or use any sort of chemicals at all, so I thought I would try this biological control. Enter the guinea fowl. Native to Africa, guineas are rather awkward, football-shaped birds with a tiny head and a voracious appetite for ticks. And unlike chickens, guinea fowl won't peck at your garden greens. So Sarah decided to give them a try. Yeah, I just went on Craigslist and I pretty easily found, there were actually a lot of different ads for people selling guineas, but we wanted a certain amount and we wanted them to be babies. So, you know, it was a perfect guy who had them and raised them and told me a lot about them. The Craigslist guineas got right to work. As soon as we started letting them out, they were immediately interested in pecking and pecking and pecking. So yeah, they they were just sort of tearing up all the bugs. Sarah and the kids showed me to a cute little wooden coop with a tin roof and a single black-and-white speckled guinea fowl inside. Sarah unlatched the door and, with Hazel's help, tried to coax the timid bird outside. Hello? Guinea, you can come out now. What are they doing there? <laughs> so pretty scared. Well, you know what? They've always been scared of us. They've always been scared. They're not, they're not pets. <laughs> They're sort of wild animals that you just have. There you go. The guinea sprints down the coop's ramp and straight into the forest. I don't think he'll go very far. He doesn't usually go very far. 
Yes, there he is. <laughs> and we could also give him some scratch. You want to give him some scratch? Why just the one? Well, we used to have eight, um, but then earlier this week, unfortunately, seven of them disappeared and we don't know what happened, but we think that they were either killed or ran away. We're definitely spooked by some predator because we did find one dead hen. So um, yeah, it's really sad. Finally, we spot the elusive guinea in a neighbor's yard. There she is, right there. Do you see it? Where is she? Under the bushes. Before the guinea fowl massacre, Sarah says she noticed a dramatic decline in the number of ticks on her family. I haven't seen any ticks on the kids since we've let the guineas go roam around. And my husband, I think, has found one on himself so far. A small 1992 study on Long Island backs up Sarah's observation. Researchers placed guinea fowl into tick-infested areas and found that they significantly reduced the adult tick population within the enclosures. But Howard Ginsberg, a research ecologist with the Department of Interior, points out a problem with timing. Most people get Lyme disease during June and July when the nymphs are out and the nymphs are in the woods. The adults, which are the stage that's targeted by these birds, is out in the fall and the spring, uh, out in open areas like people's lawns. And some people get Lyme that way, but not most people. So there may be some, you know, effect, but in general, it's not going to solve a disease problem. In fact, another study in New York State from 2004 found that where guinea fowl were allowed to range freely, ticks in the nymph stage weren't reduced, so the Lyme disease risk remained high. Still, a single female deer tick can lay as many as 2,000 eggs, so removing adult ticks does appear to reduce local Lyme disease risk overall. Fortunately, even if a tick latches onto you, Ginsburg says time is on your side. Lyme disease, that bacterium requires something like 24 to 48 hours of a tick attachment before it's transmitted. So if you do a check every day when you get back from the woods and remove ticks, you are eliminated the possibility of Lyme disease fairly substantially. And if you do find a tick embedded in your epidermis... The best way to remove the tick is to just take fine tweezers and just grab it as close to the skin line as possible and slowly pull it straight out. Then take some rubbing alcohol and clean the bite thoroughly. And get that tick safely out of your life by flushing it down the toilet. So, does Sarah plan to replenish the flock? So, we are feeling a little bit unsure of how to proceed with just one right now. They are very social creatures and they really do need to be with others. And so I'm actually in the middle of deciding whether we bring in some more, maybe some babies for this one to raise, or do we try to rehome this guinea to a place that has guineas already? No matter what they decide, Sarah says the ticks won't stop her and the kids from getting outside. Kids need to be just exposed to nature as much as possible, and we're so lucky to be living in a place that we have the woods right in our backyard, we have a trail right that we can connect to from our backyard, There's so many studies that show that it relieves anxiety in kids. It just makes them be more independent, more creative, um, have a bigger imagination, and just more comfortable in the outdoors, which is, I mean, it's therapy. But I also just check them for ticks every day, and I try not to be anxious about it because 
there's not too much that I can do about it other than check them thoroughly. With a thorough head-to-toe check, even the smallest ticks can be found before they pose a Lyme disease risk. For Living on Earth, I'm Jenny Doring in Exeter, New Hampshire. We stay with African birds with this bird note from Mary McCann. A few times each year, the eastern paradise Wida puts on its party clothes. This small finch found in East Africa is just five inches long with a black tail, brown back, and patterned face markings. But when it's time to mate, the male molts into breeding plumage. His head turns glossy black his neck golden yellow, and breast a vivid orange. But the best part? He sprouts extravagant long black tail feathers two or three times the length of his body. The male Paradise Whitea's tail feathers are not just super long, but also broad, as if they belong to a much bigger bird. It almost looks like the bird is wearing a long black cape. That's how it got its nickname, the widow bird, because it looks like a widowed woman in black morning clothes. It's a competitive scene during breeding season with lots of long-tailed males chasing one another. The more a male gets chased, the more likely he is to grow a slightly shorter tail, which could make it harder for him to stand out for the ladies. So just remember, never underestimate the power of a good party outfit. I'm Mary McCann. For pictures, head to the Living on Earth website, LOE.org, and stay tuned now for a brief lesson in speaking chimpanzee with Jane Goodall. Support for Living on Earth comes from Sailors for the Sea and Oceana, helping boaters race clean, sail green, and protect the seas they love. More information at sailorsforthesea.org. On July 14, 1960, at the age of 26, Jane Goodall arrived in what is now Gombe National Park, Tanzania, to begin her breakthrough study of wild chimpanzees. Along the way, she realized that if there were going to be chimps in the future, she'd best speak out on their behalf, as well as for the forest and their human stewards. The last time I spoke with Jane in 1993, we discussed her book Visions of Caliban, co-authored with Dale Peterson. And on the 60th anniversary of her arrival at a research site, her study still continues. Jane Goodall joins us now from her home in England. Welcome back to Living on Earth. Thank you for inviting me back. The last time we talked with you and your co-author at the time, Dale Peterson, the book Visions of Caliban, you discussed the ways that chimps and humans are similar and different. One of the similar things was the laugh, but I didn't learn to do the greeting that time. Uh, could I have a lesson now on the greeting, the, the, the chimp greeting? It's appropriate because this is the distance greeting, and we are at a distance, and most people listening are all scattered all over the place. And this is the call that a chimpanzee identifies him or herself with. They all have a slightly different one. We call it the panthoot, and it's <laughs> okay, so now that's for Jane Goodall. So, so what would a Steve Kerr would say? 
Well, you just do it a bit deeper. But so, the main thing is it's all one breath. It's like a dog panting. You can put your own sound in it. Okay. Okay, highly odd ending, but apart from that, very good. (laughs) So we're celebrating now the 60th anniversary of your arrival to what is now, what, Gombe National Park in, in Tanzania. Yeah. Take me back to that very first day. How did you feel when you stepped into the forest there? Well, going along the lake, you know, it's it's on the edge of Lake Tanganyika. And I was looking up at the thickly forested hills and it looked so big. And I was thinking, you know, how am I going to find them? But so we got there, got to the camp, put up the tent. And then it was getting towards evening, but I nipped up the opposite um, slope a little way by myself. And I sat there looking out over the lake through these trees and troop of baboons came by and I heard a bush barking and it was like, this is my dream come true. I'm in paradise. It was truly magic. Then, of course, as the days and weeks and months went by, the chimps were still running away from me. And I knew that with time I could get their trust, but there was only money for six months. But, you know, fortunately, the one who began to lose his fear demonstrated that chimpanzees can use and make tools, something which... Western science decided only humans could do. And so that brought in National Geographic Society. They sent a photographer, filmmaker, Hugo van Lauwijk. And when the reports of what I was observing and his pictures and film were circulating, the scientists just had to give up. They could no longer say, oh, why should we believe her? She's just a girl. (laughs) Your toolmaking friend, talk to me about uh, his name, and why you picked it? Well, David Graybeard had this beautiful white beard. Uh, why David Graybeard? I, I don't know. <laughs> the chimps just got names. I was told I should have numbered them by the scientists, but they all have their own personalities. Uh, they can all have feelings, happiness, sadness, fear, despair, grief. They have a territory. They patrol the territory. They can engage in a kind of primitive war. They also show compassion and true altruism as when an adult male will adopt a motherless orphan, even though that child is not related. So one of the special things about your story, of course, is that you have your mother with you at times, which is a different perspective than many scientists have. My first trip to Africa was in 1957. I was on my own. Mom let me go off on this boat. There were no planes going back and forth then. And, you know, that was that trip was when I met Louis Leakey, but it was when I went back the second time, when once Leakey got money for me to study the chimps, the British authority, Tanzania was still part of the crumbling British Empire on its last legs. And they said, no, we're not taking responsibility for a young girl on her own. She must come with somebody. And so my mother volunteered. And it was amazing because she was there. One, she set up a little clinic for the local fishermen, and that started right from the beginning a really good relationship with the local people. And secondly, when I was depressed in those first months when the chimps ran away from me, she would be there in the evening pointing out that actually I was learning more than I thought. I'd found this peak, 
and with my binoculars, I could see how the chimps were making nests at night. I could hear their calls. I could see what they were eating. I could see how they traveled around in different size groups. And sometimes all of them got together when there was a new fruit ripe in season. You had this wonderful tool documentation breakthrough as a woman scientist that, of course, put the wind under your wings and allowed you to, to move forward. But but what would you say to women scientists today who, I'm afraid to say, often run into an awful lot of opposition themselves? Well, I always say, you know, whether you're male or female, if you want to do science, a particular branch of science, first of all, you've got to really want to do it because there's competition. It doesn't matter what sex you are or what color your skin is. There's competition to get into a lot of these fields. So you've got to really work hard and do as well as you possibly can so that at least academically you can compete on an equal footing. And there's much, much less discrimination against women now than there was back in the in the early 60s when I began. But you see, I was lucky. I, there was... There was nobody to compete with because nobody else was doing it. It was just me. So there was a pivotal moment in your life, Jane, when you traveled from Gombe to a, a conference as a researcher. And as you say, you left as an activist. Tell me about that moment, please. I helped to put that conference together. It was four days in Chicago. And it was the first time the different chimp researchers from different field sites in Africa came together because by then there were six other field sites. And it was mainly to see how chimp behavior differed from environment to environment, or didn't differ, as the case may be. But we had a session on conservation, and we had a session on conditions in some captive situations, like medical research labs. And it was a shock. I, I knew there was deforestation. I had no idea of the extent of it. I had no idea the speed with which chimp numbers were decreasing. And I certainly had no idea about what went on in the medical research lab. So I just left as an activist. I didn't make a decision. I went as a scientist. I left as an activist. And the first thing I had to do was make myself go into those labs because you've got to see it firsthand. And it's been a long battle, but finally with others helping, you know, we have got chimps out of medical research. And then Africa, I learned about the plight facing so many of the African people living in and around chimpanzee habitat and flying over Gombe, which in 1960 and 70 was part of this great equatorial forest belt that stretched right over from Western East Africa to the West Coast. And when I flew over in 1990, it was just this little island of trees surrounded by completely bare hills people struggling to survive, more than the land could support, too poor to buy food from elsewhere. And, you know, this is when it hit me. If we don't help them find ways of making a living without destroying the environment, then we can't even try to save the chimpanzees. So that's where we began our Take Care to Kari program, which is our method of community-based conservation. So how does the Takara program help both local communities and conservation? Well, we've introduced microcredit based on Mohammed Yunus's Grameen Bank. So the women, particularly the women, take out 
tiny loans for their own environmentally sustainable projects, like getting a few chickens, selling the eggs, having tree nurseries, sometimes a slightly bigger project like shade-grown coffee plantation or pineapples, something like that. And because it's not just a grant given to them, but it's a loan, when they pay it back, and they do, now it's theirs. They've done it by their own hard work. Started with 12 villages around Gombe. It's now in 104 throughout the whole of Chimp Range. Protecting the forest is for their own future, not only for the wildlife, because they need the forest for, for shade, for temperature regulations, for, and, and for clean air and clean water and to prevent erosion. Now, what about your youth program that you started? Uh, I think you called it Roots and Shoots? Roots and Shoots. Yeah, how did that come about? And tell me more about it. Came about because when I was traveling, raising awareness about what was going on in Africa and also raising money for Takari and chimp research, I was meeting young people who seemed to have lost hope. And they told me they felt depressed or apathetic or angry because we've compromised their future and there's nothing they can do about it. Well, we have compromised their future. In fact, we've been stealing it. But I didn't think it was true. There was nothing that they could do. So it all began with 12 high school students visiting me at my home in Dar es Salaam, capital of Tanzania. And we decided the main message would be every single one of us makes some impact on the planet every single day. And we get to choose what sort of impact we make. And we decided that because in the rainforest you learn how everything is interconnected and every little species has a role to play, just as we all do, that every group would choose for themselves three projects, one to help people, one to help animals, one to help the environment. And because they get to choose it, they're passionate. Well, it's now in uh, more than 86 countries. And it's got hundreds of thousands of groups. It's got members in kindergarten, university, everything in between. We've even got adult groups now. And we've got a whole batch of people who've been through the program in youth. And they seem to hang on to the values. And part of this is understanding that much more important than our nationality, our language, our culture, our religion, the color of our skin, our food preferences, more important than all of that is the fact that we're one human family. Our blood is the same if we hurt ourselves. Our tears are the same. Our laughter is the same. And that is something which we need so desperately today. So, Jane Goodall, you've helped inspire so many young people through your work. Uh, how do you feel when you see now millions of young people beginning to stand up and talk about uh, environmental issues. It's wonderful. And it's not that they can change the world. They are changing the world. And, you know, Roots and Shoots, yes, we do join marches and demonstrations, peaceful ones. But uh, it's mainly about rolling up your sleeves and taking action, working out what you can do. And there's always some people passionate to help animals, to stop trafficking, for example, which is how we got the pandemic, one of the main reasons. or trying to fight factory farms or volunteering in shelters. So let's talk about what's going on right now, this pandemic and its connection to wildlife trafficking. What does this moment tell us? Well, this moment tells us that we brought this entire pandemic on ourselves. 
the scientists studying these zoonotic diseases, those are the ones that jump from an animal to a person, have been telling us for a long time this pandemic was coming and it won't be the last. And it's entirely because of our disrespect for animals and the natural world. So we cut down the forests. We're pushing animals in closer contact with people. Animals are being trafficked and many of them from different parts of Asia and even from Africa are ending up in the wildlife meat markets in Asia in horrible, unhygienic conditions. And they're stacked in tiny cages. It's horrifically cruel. And the vendor and the buyer, either of them can be contaminated with blood, urine, feces. And in this sort of environment, it's the perfect opportunity for a virus or a bacteria to jump from an animal to a person. And if that binds with a cell in the human body, it might form a new disease, and that disease might be contagious to other humans, as is the case with COVID-19. But, you know, it's also the conditions that we put animals in when we farm them intensively, these factory farms, and diseases have started there, jumping from a from an animal, a pig or a cow, to a human. So it's our fault. It's our disrespect. Here are we, the most intellectual creature that's ever walked the planet. So how come that we're destroying our only home? And we are destroying our only home very fast. We'll come out of this pandemic. We've come out of previous ones like the Black Death, but we're going to be left to face, to confront the real existential challenge of our time, which is climate change. It was Mahatma Gandhi who said, the planet can provide the human need, but not human greed. And we've become very greedy as we become more and more materialistic and less and less having any spiritual connection with the natural world. So, Jane, what are your reasons for hope? Well, first of all, as I've said, it's the young people because they are changing the world. Secondly, this extraordinary brain, now we haven't used it wisely, but science is beginning to come up with really innovative technologies that will enable us to live in greater harmony with nature. And we're using our own individual brains to think about our own individual environmental footprints. I've been a vegetarian ever since the late 60s when I learned about these factory farms. And so by not eating meat and by increasingly turning to a plant-based diet, when I'm at home here now, I'm vegan. But it can make a huge difference for anybody who wants to know one thing, eat less meat or no meat. If we all make ethical choices every day. If we if we ask about the consequences of the choices we make, where did it come from? Did it harm the environment? Was it cruel to animals? So if we make ethical choices, it'll make a big difference. And then there's the resilience of nature. I talked about the bare hills around Gombe and there's no bare hills anymore. The trees are back. Leave the land, give it a chance, nature reclaims. Animals on the brink of extinction can be given another chance. And then there's the indomitable human spirit, the people who won't give up. They tackle what seems impossible. Um, What's next for Jane Goodall? 
I'm going to carry on. I'm going to grow roots and shoots. I'm going to visit more countries. I can just go and try and inspire the right people. So here it is, 60 years later. What are you doing to celebrate this momentous anniversary? We had so many plans that was going to be, you know, going to all the different Jane Goodall Institutes, 24 countries now, and having galas, raising awareness, raising funds. Well, COVID-19's put put that all on hold. So we're doing, you know, we're doing it virtually. I've done a reading of it, The Shadow of Man, which is the first book I did, all those early days. And we're putting a whole lot of photos which have never before been seen to illustrate it. And we'll be having, you know, events online. So, of course, you not only conducted research on chimpanzees and inspired, let's face it, uh, the next generations of environmental activists, but, you know, you're usually on the road, what, 300 days a year to spread the message? So, so what keeps you motivated? Because um, I care passionately about the environment. I care about animals. I care about children. Because I'm obstinate. You know, do you think I'm going to let the Donald Trumps and Bolsonaros and people like that knock me down and keep me down? No, I'll go on fighting till the day I die. Because I'm passionate. And because I believe we have a window of time. And, you know, if everybody loses hope, if people think, well, as some scientists say, you know, on the downward path, we can't do anything anymore. Well, then nobody will do anything, will they? So that's that's what people, young people tell me, and I'm going around the world. You know, well, you've given me hope. I promise I'll do my bit. And it's only if we all do our bit and get together that we can start slowing down climate change and heal some of the harm that we've inflicted. Conservationist Jane Goodall is founder of the Jane Goodall Institute and a UN Messenger of Peace. Thanks so much for taking this time with us. Thank you very much. Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Paloma Beltran, Jenny Doring, Jay Feinstein, Ann Flaherty, Don Lyman, Isaac Merson, Ainsley O'Neill, Jake Rigo, Corey Suzuki, and Yolanda Omari. Today, a fond farewell and special thanks to Thurston Briscoe, a fine gentleman and radio guru who is retiring. We will miss you, Thurston. Tom Tiger engineered our show. Allison Larish-Dean composed our theme. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And like us, please, on our Facebook page, Living on Earth. We tweet from at Living on Earth, and you can find us on Instagram at Living on Earth Radio. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems.